The um, debate and discussion today is, of course, um, over revolutionized, um, upturned, and um, made much more dramatic by the events of, of, of uh, happening at the moment in Ukraine. Um, I am going to be discussing, therefore, the national idea as it now looks to us in the light of the events in Ukraine. Um, other speakers have touched on, uh, on the question of the national idea itself, why the nation is impor so important, why nation states are, in a sense, the principle, they can't ever be the sole, the sole version of a state uh, in, in, uh, particularly in the advanced world, in Europe and, and elsewhere. And I'm therefore going to concentrate, begin my remarks anyway, with the alternative, which in Yoram Hazani's book is, of course, empire. Um, and begin by pointing out that the principal virtue uh, of empire, that, that, I should say, by the way, that um, what's happening in Ukraine is a perfect illustration of the national idea argument. The 19th century statesman Gladstone used to refer in his speeches to Britain supporting, as he said, uh, small nations rightly struggling to be free. And if you wanted a better example, well, there isn't a better example of a small nation, except it's not very small, actually, it's the large, second largest nation in Europe and it's got 40 million people in it. But it is rightly struggling to be free and struggling against the nation, uh, the empire rather, uh, which is actually the largest state in Europe. Um, so I want to concentrate on the empire. Well, the first point about an empire is that it's meant to provide stability. Um, when you listen to the advocates of empire, and they generally use other words, but you find them suggesting that stability is what an empire will provide instead of, for example, small nations fighting each other and drawing others in. Um, now, if you look at this particular case, you'll see that what we have is an empire attempting, um, not so to speak to defend itself, um, but attempting to bring Ukraine into the Russian Federation because the ethnic core of the Russian Federation is felt by Professor Putin, by, I almost said, yes, Professor Putin in a way is acting at times like a professorial uh, figure in this uh, because um, the ethnic core of the Russian Empire is not strong enough to sustain it given that it is about half the population and minorities provide the remainder. Um, so what we see is in order to provide stability for the empire it is attempting to reconstitute its ethnic core by bringing in people from outside. Um, but when you say that an empire has got to provide stability by bringing another state into its fold, you're saying that it is an essentially unstable um, mode of organization. Um, Ukrainians don't actually want, they may have done once, but they don't want to be part of the governing um, ethnic group in an empire. And when that happens, when 
when people don't want to be, so to speak, the Spartans versus the Helots in an empire, you have to ask yourself, how stable can that empire possibly be? It is, of course, an inherently unstable empire. I might argue empire generally is, um, but it certainly is in this case. Uh, empires are unstable because the principle of their existence is the subordination of nations to a superior power. Um, in, in, uh, in might have been instituted in the past. I, that, in the past, that might have been inevitable as nations developed into history. That means, however, that the nations will always have the potential um, to be unstable. Either they can go in two directions. The states in them can either become part of the core nation, and that does happen uh, in, in successful nations, or if that doesn't happen, at some point, you have to think they will likely rebel. Uh, an empire will be, can be liberal, probably for quite a long time. Um, but if it's liberal and then subsequently democratic, then that will be, uh, that is a time bomb waiting to go off. Um, the writing on the wall, because a democratic uh, nation within an empire, which is becoming, which tries to be democratic, um, will want at some point in the future to break free from the uh, metropolitan power. Why? Well, because the nature of politics is for new problems to develop, um, for people to disagree about them, and for those disagreements to be resolved. As Balash uh, 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 argued before, the point about the nation is we have, it is, a, it is a structure for reconciling political disagreements on the basis of a common identity. Um, if you don't have that common identity, at some point or other, an issue between you and the Metropolitan Center will become so powerful, so emotional, so dramatic, that you will want to break free. I mean, in a way, a fairly modest way, but in a way, that's what Brexit was. It was people saying, this doesn't suit us. In the case of Britain, it was the mode of governing that didn't suit the British within NATO. Within um, NATO, it works fine because it's limited. But uh, it will want to break free when an issue uh, emerges. The Russian Federation uh, contains many minorities. Its ethnic core is falling disproportionately. And if it couldn't keep um, uh, Ukraine in the empire, uh, it's a sign that other people are going to be leaving it too. Forgive me. Um, yeah. Um, um, does that not? Um, does that mean uh, if we do, if we rule out empires as the basis for? Um, a stable international order because they split up um, and in order to stay together, they generally have to rely on force. Does that mean there is no international structure that harmonizes the interests of nation states? Well, of course, the Westphalian system is an answer to that. Um, but I'd like to suggest another one. 
to Yoram's um, division between nation and empire. There is, it seems to me, a third um, a mode of international collaboration. Now, in everyday life, we call it internationalism, um, and I'll come on to that. But I want to think in the case of Europe and to say, isn't Europe a civilization? A civilization, there are 27 members of the EU, there are 47 European nations. If you take Mrs. Thatcher's remark about the, uh, that Europe on the other side of the Atlantic, well, then you have an extremely large civilization. Um, but let's confine ourselves for the moment uh, to, to Europe. A civilization is an organization that is um, powerful as a means of spreading understanding and debating issues and reaching conclusions on a whole range, sometimes of highly, um, uh, um, highly powerful issues, right? Religion um, and law. Um, but it is, it is not a political organization. Um, we constantly move between each other's countries in a civilization. We constantly debate um, in, in newspapers, magazines, television programs, which are um, seen in many, of, many member states of a civilization. Um, but it's not something which, um, uh, it's not something which you have to have agreement because you have the disagreements distributed um, between nation states, which are themselves capable of reaching a policy and pr pursuing that policy. Um, Europe, therefore, is a uh, Europe considered as the whole of all, all of Europe is therefore an organisation which manages debate, discussion, difference, disagreement, and policy um, without being an, um, a political organization, which, without re being required to reach final decisions on anything. Now, um, um, is, this, uh, is this, how powerful is this, this? Well, I think in the case of Ukraine, it's an extremely powerful idea. And we see it in the conversion of the left to the, to, to the uh, national idea. What do I, why do I say this? Well, the left has traditionally not been friendly to the idea of nation as the best place, as the best form of national, as the best form of state organization. Um, uh, that's because the left grows out of a class analysis of society. Um, it's, it's, it believes that it's, um, sorry, I can't read my writing here. Oh, yeah, that it's in, in government, um, uh, it, it, class analysis of society, which meant two things. First of all, it meant that it was very often more sympathetic to the rights of small nations under empires than conservatives were. Conservative stress on stability sometimes made us, held, made us hold aloof from other, from colonial disputes, um, or support the empire. Um, but, uh, um, I'm sorry, I lost my place here. Um, yes, but they did not transfer this affection for nations to their own nation, particularly if it was a powerful nation. Why? Well, I think for two reasons. Um, it is that, um, they had a preference for, um, I'm sorry, I'm, 
Oh, yeah, um, I, I, the one I've just mentioned. The other is that patriotism was, in the view of the left, something that would best be achieved um, by economics. They saw, they used to argue things like, the rich are patriotic because they have something to lose, but the other people in society do not do so. That argument lost decisively in 1914 when the workers lined up with their nations and not with their socialist parties. Um, um, therefore, we, nonetheless, that particular feeling uh, pers persists uh, in the left's assumption that we achieve and we justify um, patriotism uh, by redistributing wealth. If we give everybody the same kind of uh, economic benefit, the same kind of uh, support in, in hard times, um, we can uh, call on them to be, uh, to be um, um, patriotic. What we have discovered in the last 30 or 40 years is that that particular welfare justification for nationalism fails unless it's supported by a pre-existing cultural sympathy within the nation. So what you have in uh, modern Europe is a series of welfare states which are, work well if they're homogenous, uh, culturally, even ethnically, but certainly culturally homogenous, but don't work well if m large non-national minorities are perceived to be benefiting from the taxations play paid by majorities. And therefore, what we need to do, and this is another justification for the national idea, is to, um, is to um, include everybody as far as we possibly can in the nation. Now, um, this has been realized in the last 20 years in America, and I think elsewhere, by the philosophers of the left. They have argued that not to have a patriotic policy, or even more so, not to exude a kind of patriotic sentiment, um, leads to, um, first of all, political weakness. That political weakness because it separates the lefts, left from their own working class voters. And it has to be addressed. Uh, but they have found it very hard to change. They found it hard to change um, because um, they cannot um, square the circle that if you're American or European, um, you, you're, you're poor, are richer than the world's poor. And that ultimately there is some kind of a choice to be made between addressing the poverty in your own society and between doing so um, in the rest of the world. The result is that in addition to uh, all the other reasons that separate the left from their voters, one of them is its concentration on the poverty of the outside world and, and, um, and its poverty at home, together with the fact that it is the right which has discovered the best way of alleviating the poverty of the outside world. It is fundamentally Reaganite, Thatcherite, even globalization policies, though that goes a little far, um, which has changed the opportunities of life for poor people in the rest of the world. Three billion Asians entered the middle class in the 25 years after 1989, and that has caused the, the left to suddenly, in a sense, conclude it has to come up with some other policy. Now, 
How much, how much longer have I got? Two minutes. Okay. Thank you. Okay. In that case, I'll move on to, um, I'll just say simply this. If we look at the United States, we see, and we see it elsewhere, we, we see multiculturalism as the principal energy and device uh, policy, which is destroying the unity of the United States, which is making, uh, in a sense, multiculturalism is like Europeanism in America. It, it is the device, the, the policy, which Sam Huntington called the deconstruction of America. And um, we do not, we underestimate the degree to which public policy and public finance in the, in the US goes towards de-emphasizing the, the um, identity of, the United, of America and, and either generating or emphasizing the um, psychology of oppositionism and the psychology of prior identity, of multiculturalism. Um, the census alone is conducted in such a way as to suggest that America is much less a country of Americans and more a country of minorities, which something which, in wrong in itself, ig ignores a very key point, which is that the, the so-called white majority has not been white for a long time. It is joined by all manner of Asians and Hispanics who actually want to be thought of as Americans to the point of actually um, not realizing that the census declares them to be not white. They think they are white, and there's no reason for me to quarrel with their own judgment. So um, public policy, the, the one takeaway I would have on this for our policies is public policy should in future, in all our countries, um, ensure that national cohesion, the transmission of American history and traditions uh, to new generations, that shouldn't be regarded as a heroic stance in politics. Um, I mean, let me put it this way. If um, Ukrainians, um, showing the heroism they are, and if President Zelensky, showing the heroism he personally does, um, if they can do that, why should it be thought heroic for an American politician to suggest rowing back the, rowing back the, the multiculturalist policies which are beginning to create in America something like a moral civil war? Thank you.